Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I'm your host. Uh, no Regan the Loggins this week. Hopefully, we'll have Regan back with us over this next week. The name of the show is Is Sorry Enough? And I think it's important that we recognize that the talk of residential schools has dropped out of the, the news cycle. There, there's very little conversation about it, even though next week on September 30th, it is being designated both on the U.S. and the Canadian side as uh, Orange Shirt Day, a day that is to commemorate, to honor, to recognize both the survivors and those who didn't survive residential schools. Look, when, when the revelations of uh, the irrefutable evidence of the thousands of mass graves, the, the thousands of unmarked graves on the Canadian side where children had been buried at these schools, when that made the news cycle, it was easy. It was easy for, for people to talk about it and look on, on both sides of the, uh, the, uh, that imaginary line. And of course, it was probably a little easier on the U.S. side to talk about it because they could still look at it as happening in Canada. Even though it's been, there's been no account, there's been no account whatsoever to what has really transpired on the U.S. side with residential schools. There's been no Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which although that was a bit of a debacle on the, on the Canadian side, there's been no similar effort on the U.S. side to, um, to even do any research and to do any real exposure to what transpired during that 100-year period where children were ripped from homes, sent to these prisons for all intents and purposes. They weren't, I mean, they're called schools, but they were essentially prisons run by churches, paid for by the government and run by churches. Um, uh, a, probably a majority of them, or, or the largest plurality of them, were run by Catholics, but it wasn't just Catholics. And the abuse, uh, look, that information has come out. It has been talked about. It has been uh, debated. But there's been no accountability for it. Nobody, nobody has ever been held accountable for the atrocities. First off, the atrocity of residential schools and the atrocities that took place at residential schools. Look, I know the, 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 the hashtag is essentially um, uh, all, children's, uh, uh, all children matter. Uh, and, but I take it someplace else. You know, to me, it's some died, but all died some. And I know that sounds a little bit like the, you know, the, the idea of soldiers going to, uh, to war and that kind of thing. But I think it's really important that people recognize that the slogan, kill the Indian, save the man, even if you subscribe to the notion that they didn't literally mean kill them, which I'm not sure that, that, that you can make that argument when you consider the deaths that actually occurred at them. But even if you don't subscribe that they literally meant kill the native people, the native children, they did mean kill the Indian, kill that part of that child. So they literally said kill the Indian, save the man. If you are going to give the best possible um, definition or explanation of what that meant. That meant kill that part of the child that is native. So what? What can emerge on the other side? Something that is human because the native part wasn't? So regardless of how you interpret it, there's no question that a part of each child was, was delegated to die. That's what the, the, not just the slogan, but the strategy on both the U.S. and the Canadian side. Frankly, this was, uh, you know, happening in, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Africa, South America. The whole idea was to kill the native part. If not the, the entire child, let's, let's at least kill part of them. So when I say some died, all died some, that's what I'm talking about. So... Yeah, when, when it makes the news cycle, because 
native territories took it upon themselves because that Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they weren't going to, to really investigate and find out what, what was the truth behind the thousands and thousands of stories associated with children who died in these, uh, in these schools. They didn't want to investigate. They, they, didn't bring, uh, they didn't look into these, uh, these school locations and, and attempt to find these mass graves or these unmarked graves. Native territories themselves did it. They brought in ground-penetrating radar, and they produced irrefutable evidence that these unmarked graves existed. And it was real easy for Canada and the United States to just say, well, yeah, those are stories, and, and we're, we want to hear all those stories, and we want to hear all those accounts, and, uh, and, and we, want to, we want to address it. Well, I'm not sure you want to address it, and you sure didn't want to investigate it. It took, a, again, these, some of these native communities had to take it upon themselves to do it. Now, not all of these schools are on native territory, so some of these may never be properly investigated, especially on, on the U.S. side. And, and keep in mind, there are hundreds and hundreds of these schools. Only a small fraction have been, uh, have been really delved into to, to look at whether the truth behind these, these unmarked graves or slash mass graves. And that's a bit of semantics. I mean, what's the difference between an unmarked grave and a, and a mass grave? Well, I, I guess the difference is how many were buried at a time. Because if you're just digging holes and, and, and placing the remains of our children, and these children were my grandparents' peers and my parents' peers. We can get into, into a debate between the difference between mass grave and unmarked grave. But the fact is that they existed and they do exist and they have not been accounted for and nobody has ever been held account for them. And of course, there are also plenty of graves that are documented, that are marked, that, that there is some documentation to. And those atrocities and, and those deaths have never been fully accounted for either. Nobody's been held accountable for it. The idea that, that children died at such a high rate, whether it was just because of disease or not, the question is why did they die at a higher rate in these schools under the, 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 the funding and the watchful eye of these church officials, these church leaders, this clergy, why did they die at a higher rate? It seemed like they should have had better care, right? It wasn't that the whole purpose of ripping them away from the, uh, these impoverished territories, poverty caused by U.S. and Canadian policy? Well, no. The, re the answer is no. That wasn't the reason. The reason to rip them away was to end the legacy, just to stop the existence, to ethnically cleanse the U.S. and Canada of uh, and, and the, the good riddance to Native people. I mean, this was genocide. Not cultural genocide, this was genocide. And it meets several of the definitions of genocide, which, in which each definition constitutes genocide. The ripping away children, sterilization, uh, creating the conditions that, that a people would cease to exist. All of, these, all of the definitions, including the death, and the murder, and the abuse, they all qualify as genocide, each individual atrocity. And yet all of them existed in these schools. So when I hear somebody say, well, these schools constituted cultural genocide. Look, they weren't just taking away our beads. They did. They took away any aspect of our culture, including our language, cutting, chopping the hair off, ripping away any of the clothing, anything, anything that would remind a child of their identity or connect a child to their native identity was stripped away. Now, if you commit genocide by way of ripping away culture, that's still genocide. It's not cultural genocide. Cultural genocide is not a thing. So I, I just get pissed off every time I hear somebody say, uh, even, even suggest that, that, that it's somehow a thing. Of course, when, again, when the news cycle hit, because of what was being uh, revealed on the Canadian side, even Deb Haaland, yeah, even the Interior Secretary on the U.S. side weighed in. She demonstrated some passing concern about it. Now, I don't know what actions have taken place at the hands of this much-lauded uh, Native person who now serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden, but we haven't seen a whole lot of action. And, you know, and, and look, I know it's, it's the wheels of bureaucracy turn very, very slow. 
but we haven't seen a lot. But the news 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 cycle, the, the the big news today is that the Biden administration is going to um, re-establish, resume the Obama era tribal summits. You know, you know those photo ops, those where millions of dollars of much needed native resources were spent for native people to go to Washington and, you know, again, get their picture taken in front of the, the White House Christmas tree, uh, get about 15 minutes of time from the actual president of the United States. And then they get to check the box. They get to say, yeah, see, we did it. We, we, we had an audience with native people. I mean, in the later years, they actually had a pre-meeting where some selected, those lucky enough to have the, an audience with the president, got to sit around. Again, more cameras than substance. Of course, <laughs> wait a second here. That's not even what's going to happen here because of, of the pandemic. This, the, the tribal summit that is planned for this fall will be uh, virtual. So you're not even going to get any good photo ops out of this thing. Uh, of course, it will save money. Native people won't have to spend the millions of dollars that it, I mean, think about this. You know, uh, you know, almost 500, 600 Native territories that are federally recognized. And, of course, they're the only ones who would actually will be able to, to attend such, such a thing. They, um, uh, that's how many would attempt to send, even if they only sent one person, that's a, that's a huge crowd. For the President of the United States to try to meet and have an audience with, of course that's not going to happen. So that's, you know, that's the new news. You know, um, oh, yeah, they're going to resume the tribal summits. Oh, yeah, big deal. <laughs> um, and, you know, look, and there will be lots of talk, and there already has been a little bit, but not much in the news cycle about, you know, what, do you, what are we going to do about this residential school stuff? I mean, on the Canadian side, they apologize, and that's why I ask, is sorry enough? I mean, that's what Murray Porter asks in his, in his great song, Is Sorry Enough? And it isn't. No. <laughs> Saying you're sorry and not doing anything. And, let's, and we'll talk about the doing anything part, too. Because saying you're sorry and, and, and somehow acknowledging that something that was done in the past was wrong, oh, that's easy. That's easy to, to apologize for, for something that, that nobody will claim responsibility for now, not the church, not the federal government. They're not, not going to claim, they're going to say, oh yeah, those were bad policies of the past. And we're better now? Well, here, here's the problem with that. Because if you're going to condemn or apologize or acknowledge the wrongs of the past, but still revel in the success of those wrongs, and, and so what do I mean? Well, what I mean is that both the United States and Canada are still continuing on this path of assimilation. And they, while they'll condemn residential schools or, or any of the other you know, terrible policies they had that were driving Native people or forcing Native people to assimilate or, you know, or otherwise the, the, uh, the commission of, of genocide against Native people, you're still going to maintain that, that we've been assimilated. And in fact, look, plenty of policies still exist. I mean, I've heard both on the U.S. and Canadian side describing native territories as within the system of federalism, meaning, okay, yeah, you have states and you, you have the nation, you know, the federal government, you have state or provincial government, you have local, um, you know, regions or counties. I don't know how they break them down on the Canadian side, but they want to consider native territories as a part, you know, albeit a small and insignificant part of their system of, of, of the delegation of of governance, that tribal governments are a part of their system of federalism. And you know what? <laughs> we aren't. And I know on the Canadian side, it's, it's, it's pushed a little harder because, you know, they, this whole idea of Indian Act and band councils, the municipalization of Native territories is farther advanced on the Canadian side than on the U.S. side. Now, I'm not saying that, there isn't, <laughs> that it doesn't exist on the U.S. side as well. Because it clearly does. This whole idea of federal recognition that I affectionately call FedREC, W-R-E-C-K, it is all part of that thing. Because the whole idea of federal recognition is, it's a continuation of what the residential schools really were. Keep in mind, 
federal recognition means a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate and under the, the U.S. Constitution, subordinate to the laws of the United States. That is exactly what, what the residential schools were all about. It was about conformity. It was about compliance. It was about taking children, taking away freedom, taking away autonomy, distinction, and eliminating that distinction so Native people could then be regarded as Americans, as Canadians, as U.S. citizens, as patriotic. That's what it was all about. So it's hard to talk about truth when you're not really going to delve into the truth. Like I said, on the Canadian side, they were not interested in really researching and exposing how many children died in these schools. And the U.S. side, there'll be less appetite for that. So when we say truth, well, not really. And when you say reconciliation, well, what the hell does reconciliation mean? Because if there isn't restoration to offset the atrocity of residential schools and assimilation and genocide, if there's nothing to, offset, to, to restore our distinction and our autonomy, then how is that reconciliation? It, I mean, are, are you were talking about cutting a check? That's what they did on the Canadian side. Canadian side, they, they cut some checks. They sent money. Well, that's not reconciliation. That's not even reparations because it's, it was certainly not going to be enough. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when we talk about land acknowledgement. Land acknowledgement sounds great, but it's pretty weak. I mean, when you do a land acknowledgement and say this is land that Native people once occupied, and then you don't even take enough time in your land acknowledgement to say what happened to those people. What happened? I mean, uh, again, to do a land acknowledgement in some place like Manhattan, for instance, if you're gonna, not going to talk about the, ma the massacres that the Dutch uh, had inflicted against them, and, and keep in mind, the reason the Dutch were massacring the Lenape in, in Manhattan was because they would not pay taxes. Yeah, imagine that. We're still fighting the state and federal government, the European colonizers over taxation, both on the U.S. and the Canadian side. We're still fighting them over their regulatory control of what we do on our lands. But the Dutch, they massacred the Lenape. And, and it, it was brutal. I mean, and, and there's, and there's first-hand hand accounts of, of it all. But so if you're going to do a land acknowledgement and then not, but not explain what happened to the Native people, where they went, or, or what they're involved in now, if you're not going to talk about who we are today, I mean, it, it, this isn't that we were lucky enough to survive. It has been hell to survive. It was hell for children to survive residential schools, and it's been hell for Native people to survive the longest and most comprehensive and overtly participated in genocide the world has ever seen. 500 years, perpetrated by Spain, by England, by Holland, by Germany, by France, by the United States, Canada, and frankly, the entire international community. This genocide has so many, so many responsible for it that nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to address it. And, and to the extent that, that it does get addressed, they'll throw a word in front of it like cultural genocide. Or I heard, the other one I heard was paper genocide. It's where they, they'll write down and say, we no longer exist. So oh, see, yeah, they committed genocide. They, they, um, they terminated somebody. They said that this native territory, this native community doesn't exist anymore. So we cross them off and that's paper genocide. No, it's still genocide. Because in order for you to do that, you created an entire system at the state level, at the provincial level, at the federal level, to ensure that once you've eliminated or wiped out a people, even if you're only doing it through paper, that, that it becomes a reality through the actions, through funding, through uh, you know, the failure and refusal to acknowledge a people. Look, uh, we talk about FedRec and the fact that there's you know, 565, I don't know how, how many federally recognized tribes. Now, one thing I want to be clear with, out of that number, the overwhelming and vast majority of them never, never 
agreed to be to being considered a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States or Canada. That's just what the way it got redesignated as as Canada and the United States redefined what a quote unquote Indian is. That's that's what happens. That's what happens with that. But if we're going to talk about the atrocity of residential schools and this idea of truth and reconciliation, how do we not address the fact that we that there is no effort on the uh, on those responsible for this, and 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 the highest responsibility rests with the Canadian governments and the U.S. governments. Yeah, they they use the churches to you know to commit the atrocities, but these were funded by the federal governments, and and, and to some extent state governments. You know, here uh, in, in Seneca territory, it is the uh, Thomas Indian School was, was a state-run school for the most part. So. These were government-funded, oftentimes run by, uh, run by churches, you know, or church-like people. <laughs> and there is no effort to, again, to do any, any restoration. And so what happens is this assimilation, which can be condemned, this genocide, which is, can be condemned, is done so... At the same time, they are, again, essentially reveling in the success of that genocide and that assimilation. Because there is not a recognition of our autonomy, our distinction, of our sovereignty. If you can't go there, then how are you really, I mean, let's, let's be honest here, how are you really addressing truth and reconciliation if there is no effort to say, not only did we, what we did was wrong, but we're going to uh, we're going to reverse some of it. So if you don't reverse some of those, those efforts and some of what you, you accomplished, some of what you did to Native people, then that's not reconciliation. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at people. It doesn't matter. I mean, look, <laughs> they just print more money. You know, and you know, on the Canadian side, most of whatever goes back to Native people are coming from what was stolen from Native territories in the first place. And, and frankly, the same thing on the U.S. side. Let's face it, the, the wealth of the U.S. and Canada really came from what was stolen from Native people in the first place. And on the U.S. side, what was also stolen from, from black people in terms of slavery. But I mean, there's no question about where the wealth comes from. So when they just print money and then hand it to us and say, okay, we're, we want to compensate you for the wrong that we did. Well, wait a second here. Before you try compensating for the wrong that you did, Let's undo some of that wrong. Now, I know many people think that, that that's a hill too, uh, too steep to climb. For the United States to, to recognize, look, and let's be clear, the U.S. and Canada were two of the five nations that voted against the U.N. Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that document is by no means you know, enough. In fact, that document all by itself says, it calls itself the minimum standard for survival and dignity of indigenous people. The minimum standard. Not the mid-range, not the, a moderate uh, standard, the, the minimum standard. It is by no means a solution to what plagues native people today. Uh, you know, anywhere. Anywhere in the world, indigenous people. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. But the U.S. and Canada voted against it. And to the extent that they have subscribed, I guess you could say, to the aspirations of the Declaration, they do so with a caveat. And that is provided it doesn't conflict with their laws. Well, what the hell did you think they passed this thing for? Why do you think the, the international community created this Declaration? Because there are many laws in, in, in many countries that are unfair, that they are unjust. And a law that is unjust is, is not a law at all. It's oppression. So if you're going to say, yes, we endorse the aspirations of, of, of an international declaration, as long as it doesn't conflict with our laws, well, then you're not endorsing the aspirations in the first place. In fact, you're putting the brakes on it. So... 
and again, I'm not going to talk a lot about the, the, the UN declaration, the, the UNDRIP as it's called, because it, it doesn't go far enough. It never addresses, in fact, the word sovereignty only is brought up in the document when it's referring to the sovereignty of the states that, this, that these rights are supposed to be upheld by that are not. I mean, the United States and Canada still stand in stark neglect, violation, opposition to many of the, uh, of the articles in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The most prevailing language of that declaration is the language that says, um, free, prior, and informed consent must be gotten from Native people for a whole variety of things, everything from damage to the environment around our territories, and essentially anything that impacts Native people. That if you're going to legislate or, or develop a practice or a policy that impacts us, then free, prior, and informed consent. Not consultation, <laughs> not a tribal summit in front of the Christmas tree at the White House. Free, prior, and informed consent. That means that they have to provide all of the information. We have to have plenty of time to review that information. And the consent, now, and even the consent thing is difficult, right? Because when you talk about consent, and you say, well, who has authorized to, to give consent? Well, as far as the Canadian federal government is, it is the recognized governments that they are trying to say are <laughs> municipalized within their system of federalism that they are the ones who are bestowed the authority by the U.S. and Canada to provide that consent. Well, how the hell does that work? If you have no means, and, and there is no desire to have the means, to assess the will of Native people as a whole at the grassroots level, because let's be clear, there is no desire by the U.S. or Canada to ever understand what the will of Native people are. That's why they prop up their federally recognized leadership. Because they would rather deal with somebody that they're inducing with money, with, with programs, uh, with you know, all these promises. They would rather deal with that person, that counselor, that president, that chairman, that chief, than ever have to deal with the, with the real issues on the ground in Native territory. That's why we have missing and murdered indigenous women. That's why we have environmental degradation. That's why Native children are committing suicide at the highest rate across any other group of people. That's why our health conditions are bad. That's why we, we fail to even have adequate drinking, clean drinking water on, on many of our territories. Because it's not nice to say that all lives matter or children lives matter, but you know what? The fact of the matter is, as far as the federal government is concerned, we don't matter. That's why policies have been developed and instituted, imposed on native territories to ensure that poverty will continue to exist. I mean, we aren't impoverished because we didn't have anything to start with. I mean, we had the most productive lands you know, that, that the world knew of. And all that was taken away. And it's not just us. I mean, I, I think about, I, I always have to go and bring up my, my brothers and sisters in Hawaii. Because think about Hawaiians with this paradise. And, and now the Kanakamali, the, the Native Hawaiians, live in abject poverty there, for the most part. If, I mean, as a general rule, en masse, so if you, if you look at the, the Native Hawaiian people, in fact, most of them can't even afford to live in their homelands. They had to, they had to move to the continent because the, the price of everything got, got driven up by policy to support rich white people and the military. So the, we who had it all have almost nothing. <laughs> the Bible. Yeah, they, they, they gave us the Bible. Took the land, took the resources, enslaved us, took our children, murdered our children, murdered our women, but they gave us the Bible. So it is really, really difficult for me to have a conversation 
about reconciliation. Even, even a conversation about reparations is, is difficult to have. Because reparations always just turns into dollars and cents. I mean, it's like, it's like land claims. I think about how many times we've been offered money for the land that they stole and, can, and, and plan to keep. The Black Hills, for instance. I mean, there's another example. I, I'm glad the Lakota have rejected the payments for the Black Hills. They don't want the payment. They want the Black Hills. They want to scrub off all the graffiti that was carved in, uh, in, into the mountainside. So what the United States and Canada, United States and Canada attempt to do is to just throw money at a problem. Money that has oftentimes not only no value, but they have a, um, a they actually have a destructive impact on our territory because who gets the money? Who gets the money is who gets the power. And so this, this power dynamic that gets created out of dollars and cents, out of the will of the Canadian or U.S. government, is what continues to, to be the problem on our territories. That's not reconciliation. That's not addressing the atrocities. It continues that. So, so there can be no meaningful conversation about reconciliation if we can't have a substantive talk about the restoration of our distinction and our autonomy. And of course, that distinction and autonomy doesn't survive if with it we don't have the controls, our land rights, our land use, our ability to, to, you know, to create economies on our territory. This has been a constant struggle. I mean, one of the reasons the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in the first place was their concern about the idea that Native people would attempt to assert sovereignty over the land. Let me say it again. Because what the National Security Council basically said about this was, look, when we talk about things like self-determination, we don't mean the international definition of self-determination. See, that's what the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about self-determination. But... The United States says, no, 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 no. We don't mean self-determination in the international sense of the word. We mean internal self-determination. We can set them up and we can, we can help them create little governments for themselves. And, and they can deal with their, some of their domestic issues, their organizational issues. We'll provide them funding to do programs. But we're not going to recognize that they have the authority to, to rule over their lands. I mean, we have seaways. We have highways. We have... You know, we have rail that goes through lands. We can't give them control of that. So, and they have desired to do more. You know, I, um, I'm not one who gets all excited about Native people um, having success in their system. And, you know, look, I've been a critic of Deb Haaland and Cherise David. And, you know, and of course, the, the, the Native men who... Like Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who was a Republican, you know, or, or, or any of these guys you know, who, who run for Congress um, as Republicans. I have less, even less respect for them. Not that I think Democrats, you know, have much to, to brag about. But, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is Diane Humatiwa. Now, Diane Humatiwa is a judge. She was a federal judge. She was actually nominated by Barack Obama. But that nomination came at the request and the, the recommendations by John McCain and Jeff Flake, two Republicans. So they were advancing somebody who they felt ideologically connected to in Diane Humatiwa for this federal judgeship. Now, when um, uh, Scalia died, there was a lot of clamoring, oh, yeah, let's put uh, Diane Humatiwa on, on, uh, on the Supreme Court. But did anybody bother to find out what her politics were? I mean, because the only, and I don't know the only, but the first case that Diane Humatiwa, as a federal judge, had to, um, to rule on that involved Native people, she ruled against Native people. Of course she did. She ruled against Native people who were trying to stop a highway from going through their lands. They were concerned about the, the desecration of the lands. They were concerned about the environmental issues. They were concerned, and, and she 
threw their argument out, and the highway went through. So when Native people get, get put into, elevated into these positions to serve the white man's government, of course they're not going to necessarily, you know, prioritize our concerns. I'm not saying they, they won't consider stuff. I'm like, I hope that Deb Haaland does the right things on, on a bunch of these issues, like, you know, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, like some of these environmental issues. But at the end of the day, she's the Interior Secretary. Part of her responsibility is to make sure that the lands are mined and, and leased and, and for grazing and, and for, for all of this stuff. You know, she's responsible for the dams, the damming of rivers and all that stuff. Her job isn't necessarily to take care of us. Look, she didn't get put in that position because we wanted her there. I'm not saying there weren't plenty of Native people who want, didn't want her there. I, I saw some of the clamoring over it. But she serves them. Mary Simon, who is the, the governor general representing the Queen of England for Canada, her job isn't to, isn't to stand up for Native people. And, it, and it's not really about, neither one of these people are going to play a, a significant role in what any of us could really legitimately call reconciliation on one of the most clear and long-lasting acts of genocide that the U.S. and Canada were involved in, and, and that, is, of course, is the residential schools. We had generations with an S that were terrorized by these, these schools, and I use that term loosely, by the churches that ran them. They were sexually abused. They were sterilized. They were murdered. They were psychologically abused. They were deprived of, uh, of proper nutrition. The reason that the death rate was so high in many of these schools was because of the lack of adequate medical care. There were kids that died for something that no other child would die of. Minor injuries, minor ailments. Why? Because nobody really cared. I mean, I can go all the way back to the, the church's um, um, uh, canonization of Hunaparacera. And I've talked about Hunaparacera before. Hunaparacera was a missionary. He was, he was this priest in, in what is now called California who really measured his success by how many souls he delivered to the Catholic Church, not how many lives were saved. It didn't matter if a child died in Hunaparacera's care as long as they were baptized. Because once they were baptized, he could check a box. Another soul to Jesus. Another soul to Jesus. Didn't matter if the children died, and they died. I mean, the, the, the death rate of children in the care of uh, Hunaparacera. And he claimed, and, and, and the Catholic Church claimed, that somehow... He protected Native people, Native children, from the atrocities of, of, the, of you know, the military, you know, of, of land speculators, all that stuff. I mean, I mean, it really is crazy. Because if you measure the success, or if you're, if you're going to measure the impact of residential schools on conversion, to, you know, to, to whatever Christian faith there was. Oh, yeah, you can say all kinds of success. If you're going to measure on, on how much you screwed up Native families and, and, and interfered with, with um, uh, you, know, you know, culture and language, oh, yeah, you, great success. But if you're going to really measure these schools against the damage that was done for generations, I mean, 100 years, I mean, you, you can do whatever kind of math you want to determine how many generations that is, but it's a significant number of generations. I mean, think about the children who lost their connection, not just with their parents, but their grandparents, their great-grandparents, or all the stories that, that, that just went by the wayside, the ceremonies, the songs, the, the skill sets, all of the things that were a part of our identities that were destroyed by church by clergy, state, provincial, and federal governments. Destroyed, snuffed out, 
just like the lives of, some, of, of so many of those children. So, look, I'm not just cynical or skeptical about what positive things can come out of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because I know, I mean, I think, uh, what, I heard some numbers, like, out of the 94 recommendations that came out of the Canadians' Truth and Reconciliation Commission, almost none of them have followed, been followed, and among them was pursuit of these uh, unmarked graves. Canada didn't do that. And look, I also know, when I, when I think about countries like Canada and the United States, I know how low a priority we are. Look, I know it makes, you know, it, it's a nice story when they can elevate a Deb Haaland into a position that'll serve Joe, Joe Biden, or elevate a Mary Simon that'll, that'll serve, the, you know, serve the Queen of England. And, and good for them. You know, they, they are achieved some level of success in that system. But they aren't serving us. They're serving the colonizers. They are ser serving the colony. That's what their jobs are. Now, to the extent that they should have compassion for Native people and Native issues, you know, we can all hope that, that they at least consider some of that. But at the end of the day, we find our success, our future, all too often stands in, at odds with the success of Canada and the United States. I mean, look, look, look what's happened environmentally. Look at how the U.S. and Canada you know, have, have built up their military industrial complex. Look how they've, they've built up consumerism and capitalism to, to really create something that's a danger to all of us right now, the, in the entire globe. And, and I'm not holding... Canada and the United States solely responsible, but look, they're, they're essentially birds of the same feather, right? I mean, let, let's be honest. They're the, the European colonizers that, that have basically now have exploited, almost completely exploited our homelands to the extent that, that we are almost, in, we are an insignificant population in, in, our home, in our homelands. And yeah, we can have conversations about voting in their elections or endorsing their candidates. I mean, look, they just had a, uh, an election on the Canadian side. So Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister. He's still in the same situation. How, how does that change anything? And, and if the argument was, well, it would have been worse if the other guy won. Maybe. You know, but is, is that really the issue? You know, who was worse? Because that's the way most politics work, right? the lesser of two evils. But do we want to endorse those evils? Even if it's the lesser of two evils, do we want to even get involved in that? I still maintain that our strength, our strength comes from our autonomy and our distinction, which is what we should be pushing forward as the most important agenda piece when it comes to this idea of reconciliation on residential schools. Restore what was lost. You can't, give us a, you can't give us those lives back. You can't give us those children that you murdered or allowed to die. And you can't even fix the parts that you killed in every child who went to those schools. That, again, that some died, all died some. You can't even address that. But we're still here today. And if you expect us to live under that system of assimilation that you now want to apologize for, it doesn't work that way. You cannot expect us to live lives in conformity with what you imposed upon us through what would be considered a war crime. Look, U.S. and Canada, you are guilty of genocide. Not suspected, not alleged, you are guilty of it. And you know that you are. And you had the churches all acting in, in complicity with you. The Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Mormon Church, the Presbyterians, all of those churches were 
a part of this heinous act, these, these atrocities that you committed against Native people through residential schools. And of course, it didn't just end with the residential schools because it would continue with the foster care system. Look, in, in Maine, when they did their, their truth and reconciliation, and, and again, pushed by Native people, what their Truth and Reconciliation Commission was about was not necessarily just about residential schools. It was about the foster care system. And the atrocities committed against children who were placed in servitude to white people, who were abused sexually, physically, emotionally, psychologically. So it isn't just the brick and mortar buildings with, with, you know, with church altars uh, constructed in them. It's the entire policy. Look, in, in, in New York State, when, when New York State really got involved in the Thomas Indian School, they basically relegated all Native children as disabled. They designated our children as essentially irredeemable. And they just had to put a, find a place for them and a place that they could create some value out of our, out of our children by teaching them to be farmhands you know, or domestic servants of some sort, maybe carry a gun in the military. There was, there was no skill sets. There was no, no real skill or education provided to these, these children, our children in these schools. Our children weren't being educated. They were just being beaten into a submission, into a submission to the lowest spot in the societies, in the chain of, of American and Canadian society. We're being designated that spot. And what these schools were about was making us fit into that spot to where they could find some, some productivity out of, our, out of our kids within their system. I mean, it was never about fixing our communities. And, and look, to the extent that, that some will say, well, you know, these children were taken out of, uh, you know, homes that were being decimated by alcoholism. Well, where the hell do you think the alcohol came from? How do you think our territories became impoverished, became degraded in the way that they did? You did that. You brought alcohol to the negotiation table for, for, for treaties. You fed a constant supply of I mean, and I'm not even addressing smallpox blankets. You know, that, that's even, you know, that even comes before that. But you, you provided a constant supply of all the things that would destroy our kids, including bad food. We have the highest incidence of, of diabetes out of any other people in the United States and Canada. Why? Well, you eliminated our food supply and sent us lard. You sent us flour. You sent us sugar. Well, that really worked out great. You have, you have continuously done everything in your power. And look, I'm not saying you don't do some of the stuff to your own people. You do. But to suggest that, that the United States and Canada is really sorry? You know, I, I sent a letter to um, uh, Pope Francis before he came to the United States. I don't know how many years ago it was. I, I think it was just... Um, shared the, the letter. And I said, look, you can't expect us to respect your apology or to accept your apology for the crimes the church committed against Native people if you won't even do something like repudiate the doctrine of Christian discovery. You're, as a church, as the Catholic Church in particular, you understand that forgiveness can only come with some acts of contrition. So you have to do something you have to perform a task to earn that forgiveness in, in, of your own God. And, and I'm not even talking about from us. In order, in your system, in your belief system, you have to perform some act of contrition for forgiveness. Well, that's not just what you got to get from, you know, from your, your belief system. But if you expect it from us, if you expect us to accept your apology, then you've got to do something. And it's not money. I mean, it may be some, some financial resources, 
but it's about restoration. Reconciliation means that you, to reconcile something, you take something that was just, now is unjust, and then you make it just again. That's what reconciliation, to reconcile something, you bring it back to justice. We're not talking, that, that's not what dollars can do. You have to stop trying to impose your system of federalism on our territories. Now, look, I know that there are plenty of native territories that are so assimilated into the U.S. and Canadian system. Look, I, I saw the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, you know, make a, pass a tribal council resolution declaring that they are a Christian nation. No, they're not. But that government, you, you've got them hook, line, and sinker. And many of these band councils and tribal councils, you know, across the U.S. and Canada, they, these governments that you created through the Indian Reorganization Act and the Indian Act, there's no question that, that they have fully embraced a position within your system. But they don't represent all Native people. That's why we have people at Line 3 fighting a pipeline. That's why you had people going up to, to Standing Rock. That wasn't the tribal council that sent people there. No, they were, they were still too busy trying to you know, appease Barack Obama. So as we're fighting tar sands oil, as we're fighting pipelines and the extractive industries, and those extractive industries are not just fossil fuels. They are every mineral that the United States des designates as, as valuable. It, it might be trees. It's water. It's land. Look, as climate change really begins to impact the broader population, we are going to be even more insecure in, in, the, in the small piece of land that we have yet, that we've been able to retain. Because I know as cities like New York City, you see 10 million people displaced, I know where they're going. They're going to go to, to the lands that have not been destroyed yet. And you know where those lands are? Native lands. Because you've made a mess of the place. So don't expect me, don't ask me to accept your apology. Because your apology is not accepted. Yahweh.